They get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake rule. Cold blood is with the strong scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss the straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted. Slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subjects. Paragraph the punches. Do you see color when you read a word or hear a particular sound or maybe even get a taste in your mouth? If so, you may be a synesthete. Today on That Got Me Thinking, I'll be speaking with Dr. Veronica Gross about synesthesia. Join us. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Newman, and this is That Got Me Thinking. My guest today is Dr. Veronica Gross, and we'll be talking about the incredible world of synesthesia. My son recently asked me what I thought about the idea that maybe we see colors differently, that maybe his green was my yellow. I remember my daughter asking the same question about the same age, and I remember wondering the same thing when I was a child. That got me thinking about perception and individual cognitive and visceral experience, about preferences and differences and the idea of normal. We all live in this world very differently. We have different likes and dislikes, but it goes beyond that. We don't just see things through different eyes metaphorically. We actually experience the world differently. And that got me thinking about the relationship between cognition and the conscious mind, empathy, acceptance, tolerance, individuality, and mutual understanding. Welcome, Dr. Gross, and thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here. So synesthesia is something that I had heard about first when my daughter was reading a book uh, a few years ago called The Mango Shaped Space. Yes. And then I interviewed a guest uh, about a month ago, Magda Pachenya, and just she kind of threw out in the middle of the interview, oh, I'm a synesthete. And I thought, okay, I- I'm going to do an a interview on this and started researching a little bit. Um, Dr. Richard Saitawik describes it as joined sensation, multidimensional sensory experience, where two senses are crossed. Um, could you talk a little bit about, just to start, you know, in general terms, what it, what it is? So we were talking about how Dr. Saitoic's book was one of the older ones, because he's using a definition most of us don't necessarily hold to anymore, or rather, it's a little bit too simplistic. Because when you think of a sense, you think about hearing or seeing or smelling, but there are many forms of synesthesia that don't fit into our typical five senses. For example, there are all sorts of synesthetes who have associations with personalities, especially the personalities of their letters and numbers. And sensing personality isn't considered one of our traditional senses. Make sense? Yeah. And just backing up one step, I'm guessing that most people have never even heard of it. And so even the concept of what it means when you say, oh, you know, someone could see a number has a, a, an identifiable color. Um, so just in the most basic terms, I want to just start uh. there. It's like, what is synesthesia? What does someone mean when they say they're a synesthete? Well, that second part is sometimes different from your first question. So I'll hold off on what people say and I'll go with a general definition of synesthesia. When we talk of synesthesia, we talk about an experience in one or more sensory modalities or sensory areas or even just experiences triggering one or more experiences in one or more other sensory modalities or perceptions. And that sounds so broad, but it has to be. It's, and if I want to boil it down and not make it completely accurate anymore, it's something happens and something else we don't expect also happens perceptually in our minds, in our brains. Like a color could have a physical or emotional quality or a, a sound could have a taste. 
Exactly. And the person who is a synesthete is experiencing that second thing, that second taste, that second emotion, that second color, that second sound, that second physical experience at the same time as he or she is experiencing the primary thing. We call that primary thing a, you know, a trigger and the second thing a percept. It's a uh, it's automatic, it's involuntary, and it's simultaneous. So somebody for whom, and one of the most common types is what we call color graphemic or colored letters. So a person who is color graphemic will see a letter A, for example, and the person will understand that letter A as the letter A. At the same time, that person will experience a color and the color for A is very often either red or yellow, according to surveys. And that letter color may be in their mind's eye, or it may be actually physically floating on top of the A, which is the completely unanswerable projector uh, associator debate, which we may or may not have time to get into. Uh, and and I think the most the most useful thing I can say is that these people aren't hallucinating. You know, the, def the definition of hallucination means there's nothing else happening. This is an experience in the absence of sensation. Well, synesthesia is the complete opposite. For a person to be a synesthete, they need to be experiencing something. And a lot of synesthetes who write to me say, you know, I thought I'm crazy. So, no, you're not crazy. It, that doesn't mean that every synesthete does or does not have mental illness. But that does mean that the average synesthete, just by virtue of their synesthesia, is not crazy. They're not hallucinating. And, and let's talk a little bit about just the difference between the projector and the associate, because it's sort of a difference as to whether it's happening internally and still happening, not in imagination, yes. Yes. versus they're actually experiencing it outside of their body, Yes, what they're seeing. Right. And there is some debate about whether it's a true difference mm -hmm. or whether there are slight neural dif uh, differences between the two types and by in their mind's eye the way i use i uh, usually describe it is picture an elephant there it is you know where you see things within your mind will be where the color exists for the typical associator synesthetes though we also have people who are ticker tape which means when they are reading the colors are appearing in a line as they go along, as opposed to kind of in this nebulous space in their mind. But for a projector, yes, the color itself will appear out in perceptual space, meaning it is possible for letters, true colors, to be partially obscured. Not that they can't tell whatsoever what the true ink color of the letter would be, but that there's something on top of it as well. And so I wondered about that. So then the, the projection is on top of it. If it's not a black letter on white print, if it were, were, say, a red letter, but their B is not red, they would know that it was a red color, but they would see the other on top? Or is uh, it different for different individuals? I am going to hazard a guess and say, and, and I don't know as many projector synesthetes as I do associators. It seems associator is much more common. A person who is reading, well, let me back up and say it doesn't actually matter the color of the letter in font trueness because there are people who have 
black synesthetic letters. In fact, the end of the alphabet, you often see a number of letters that are rendered as black, no matter as uh, no matter what the color of the font is. That's just something we've seen. A lot of browns in the middle of the alphabet and darker letters at the end. So if they were looking at a red letter on a white background or a red letter on an orange background, they would be able to see both that their synesthetic letter is A and the text letter is A. And it makes some interesting kind of uh, perceptual phenomena or experimental things because that means they that a projector synesthete will show different effects of pop-out, or it, which is its own perceptual thing. So let, when we think about pop-out, we think about a big array of squares. And if there was a circle in there, it would take the average person no time to find that circle, right? In fact, we find a circle in a big array of squares faster than we quote-unquote should, according to perceptual theory. Well, a synesthete with different colored letters who is a projector will also experience pop-out far faster than you would expect if the color were not out there in perceptual space. So if that red A for them was in uh, an array of black letters, they might be able to find it really quickly. But if that red A for them was, and I guess red A meaning their, that personal synesthete's red A, if that synesthete's you know, A were in an array of red letters, they wouldn't be able to find it more quickly. And you mentioned just briefly that it goes far beyond that. That's kind of the most basic, that also yes. words and letters and things can have physical or emotional qualities and, and varying levels of intensity. Yes. And genders, uh, right? Like yeah. something can have a, a, a gender for a synesthete. So gender comes a little bit more with what the technical time is ordinal linguistic personality synesthesia. And this is my personal favorite type of synesthesia in as much as one can have a favorite type. I think one can. I think that's very really reasonable. <laughs> the OLP synesthetes associate personalities and, and that includes genders with their letters and numbers. And H for synesthete might be uh, a 75-year-old man, and R might be a 12-year-old boy. How these come about, we don't know, and the interactions and the personalities and genders are unique to the synesthete. I don't know if other percepts have just a flat gender, though we do know that language genders words and objects. Uh, there are some great experiments done with uh, the Romance and, and other European languages showing that when an object has a particular gender, a person asked to tell a story about that object will give it a masculine or feminine voice, depending on whether the language considers uh, the object uh, a masculine or feminine word. And what got you interested in studying this area? Well, it's a long story. So, I believe it is a rite of passage for every science-oriented teen young adult to read Oliver Sacks, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And uh, or perhaps it should be. You know, make well, it a required and it's just so good for anyone. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. But I, I think the, the science-minded uh, of us are just more naturally drawn to it. And I think it had come out just around the time that I was you know, 13 or 14. And I was fascinated by it, and I did my undergraduate at Brown in neuro, and they were, were great. And then I went on to do my PhD work at BU, and I was working with Alice Cronin-Gallome at the Vision and Cognition Laboratory there. And when it came time for me to pick out 
my project, she said, well, we've had people do Parkinson's disease research. We've had people do Alzheimer's disease research. And previously, we had a young woman who had synesthesia and who did synesthesia research. And I said, that sounds really cool. And, and had, said, you heard, had you heard, of, like, <laughs> you knew what synesthesia was at that point? Yes, it was mm-hmm. because that was in, uh, I'm sorry, I should have gone back to that. That was in Dr. Sachs's book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. There was a story of somebody who had synesthesia. Uh, I don't remember the exact title of the story, but he had described it and I knew what it was. And I thought that was just, oh, wow, that's super cool. So because I thought it was really cool and because the option was available, I ended up becoming a synesthesia research uh, or else I could have done something else. The lab does all sorts of wonderful things. This is my personal plug for the Vision and Cognition Lab at BU. And if you are in the Boston area and have you know, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, please look them up. They're always doing uh, research with people who have those. Anyway. And so let's talk a little bit about that, about historically the path of science's relationship with synesthesia. Because um, according to Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Cole, it was first described by Locke in the 1690s. And then there was a medical reference in the 1700s. And then it sort of had a lot of interest and then lost favor. And by the 40s had disappeared as being something that was being studied um, actively in either the medical community or the scientific community. And I think people thought then that these people were either crazy or, or making it up for attention. And then, and then it was uh, Simon Baron Cohen to a certain extent, I think is the most well-known, but also Larry Marks and Richard Sitoek. The, the drop-off in the 40s and 50s signaled, I think, a change in how research was being done. That There was a lot more of a medical basis, a lot more of a, a desire to do science in a very scientific way and less willing to consider things that couldn't be quantified. Uh, and but once the 80s rolled around and you had these these broad reaching well respected psychologists who are saying i'm doing all this other research this is something i'm encountering look i'm attempting to assign numbers to it to talk about not just what the synesthetes are experiencing in their words but what they're doing that the research became more uh, more prevalent. Now, the problem is that there are very few, and I can only think of five or six off the top of my head, synesthete labs devoted merely or purely, merely is the wrong word, purely to synesthesia. In many cases, you can't get funding just for synesthesia. You're still using synesthesia as a side project, with money you have from doing other research because nowadays it's very, very hard to convince people to do research on things that aren't going to lead to the cure for disease. And synesthesia, in my mind, and of that of many other people, is not a disease. Well, and it's interesting, too, sort of what becomes popular and, and in scientific study and why something mm-hmm. like this might have been ignored, but it's sort of because it's a subjective experience yes. and then it didn't fit with the ideas of how the brain worked, right, mm-hmm. early, early on. And it seems yes. like maybe through brain mapping and being able to see what was happening that then with the change of technology, maybe the change of focus, it will and, and has a little bit blossomed. We do have a lot of imaging studies coming out right now to the point where there are enough that people can now argue with them, which is always a, a good, I think, a good well, sign. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the science of it. Sure. What people used to think was happening in the brain and what now is believed to be happening. 
Well, that's just it. We, there's, there's no proof in one direction or another. And the three main theories are still there. And, you know, they're, they're leaning to one side or another. And the, you know, the three main theories are that, um, in the, which I will, these are, and these were talked about very early on, I think, in a book that I had mentioned called uh, Synesthesia. It's from the 1990s. And there are three main theories. The first one is the infantile synesthete. And you and I had talked a little bit about that and mostly talked about by Daphne Morier, which says, we are all born with connections in the brain among all of our sensory areas. And through the normal process of what is called neural pruning, our brain gets rid of these extra connections. We are born with many more brain connections than we will ever need. We end up getting rid of them, which is why it's so important to, uh, to correct an eye problem early on, or the brain will learn to ignore input from that eye and literally prune away the connections in the visual cortex. And for synesthetes, these connections stay there, and they are synesthetic. And so before you go on to the next one, let's talk a little sure. bit more about the idea that that just to give sort of a, a pictorial sure. <laughs> image and needle that, that here's this baby that's, you know, hearing the mom's voice and maybe smelling something or seeing something at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that there isn't sort of the idea is that there isn't the same differentiation and Correct. separation between these senses Correct. that, that an adult experiences. Yep. And we don't have very much proof of this because it's very hard to do connect brain studies on infants. And we don't necessarily know what they are experiencing, though the the way that you know an infant is interested in something in scientific studies is you see how much they suck on a pacifier. And there have been a few studies in which you show an infant something and you put it in their mouth and they're able to recognize it in a similar way. And... And that's that's a conclusion, and I'm greatly simplifying it. And it would make sense. There are so many extra connections that it would make sense that visual input is talking to auditory input in a way it simply doesn't in the average human brain. And so in the first theory, it's that as these people grow, this population grows, they aren't separated and pruned in the way that maybe the, the majority of the population is. Yes. Okay, so it's theory two. Theory two is that... We all have these connections, these potential synesthetic connections, but somehow synesthetes are able to access them in a way that the average person cannot. And that one is also interesting, and the proof for that is... Uh, the famous Kiki Boba. I think have I think you might have encountered this somewhere. Well, this is a, this is a, a kind of language experiment. You show somebody who speaks English a pointy shape, and you show somebody who who speaks the English language a kind of blobby shape, and you say to somebody, which one of these is a Kiki, and which one of these is a Boba? And many people who speak the English language will say the pointy shape is a Kiki, and the blobby shape is a boba, and we have these kind of sound shape interactions naturally formed within our English-speaking brains, and that shows that we can have these natural language shape color associations if we could only have access to them in the way synesthetes do. And that's a very, very basic, again, commonly known experiment, or at least more widely known experiment. 
And there's as much validity for that as there is for anything else. I mean, it would be because you have people who have synesthete-like experiment, uh, experiences rather when they take drugs or when they have migraines. Uh, one of the first studies I encountered in the 90s and 2000s was a woman who is an artist who very vividly illustrated her migraines. And they appeared in a certain way when she was having them. And then as they dissipated, she no longer illustrated them. So in that theory, it would be that the capacity is there for everyone, Mm -hmm. but that only in this population is it realized. Yes. For whatever reason. Yes. Okay. Theory number three. Theory number three is that synesthetes have a connection that nobody else does and for some genetic or other reason. And that there are these extra connections between particular areas of the brain involved in their particular form of synesthesia, often involving a part of the brain we call the parietal lobe. The, and we can talk a little bit more about the parietal lobe later. And these connections go from the parietal lobe to somewhere else in the brain. And synesthetes just have them. Of course, whether they showed up in only a synesthete's brain and stayed there or whether they were found in the infant's brain of everybody and stayed in the synesthetes, again, we can't tell. There are more what we call longitudinal studies, studies looking at synesthetes from a very early age and looking at their brains as they change. And I think in the next 10 or 15 years, as these studies mature, we're going to learn a lot more about how these brains change. And is that Dr. Saitoic's theory that it's this uh, genetic element where there's a single nucleotide mutation and that there there, that a, a area of the brain gets excited, and then instead of having a typical barrier where it quiets, it then kind of knocks on another <laughs> area's door and says, "Hey, light up." I think uh, a, a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP is much too simple for the level of um, for the level of neural change. And you can see SNPs for diseases. Those have very wide wide ranging things. But for anything dealing with the brain that isn't a very isolated disease, your a SNP isn't going to be enough. You're going to see changes on many, many genes. And there is a what we call a genetic locus you know, a place on a gene that seems to be associated with synesthesia and that people who have synesthesia are more likely to have changes in these particular regions on genes. Uh, and so, yeah, there could be some number of changes in genes that make it more likely for an area not to suppress activation. Which ones? Oh, we're still doing, you know, last I checked, there's only one big genetic study done in the 2000s. Uh, and I can look that up as we're talking, if you'd like. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the experience of someone with synesthesia. Because sure. I was surprised to see it. it's often not recognized um, for many people until they're in adulthood. There was a story, and a matter of fact, she has the boba experiment um, on mm-hmm. her talk, Caitlin mm-hmm. Hova. And she says she was 20 years old when she realized that this was a known named phenomenon. She was in music class and she said it was a movie moment that the teacher yeah. said something about, well, you know, some people, she was in music class, she's a musician. Well, you know, some people actually, when they hear music, they'll see colors or they could have a, a taste associated. And she all of a sudden gasped or something and everyone turned around <laughs> because this has been her experience for 20 years. Yeah. Oh, this is not, this is not unlikely. There are, I receive emails, hundreds of emails a year, and I'm sorry to anyone who's listening that I don't respond. There are just so many. And 
unfortunately a little bit deprioritized next to medical school. There are so many synesthetes who will write me who are younger people, but every now and then I'll get somebody in their 50s who says, I did not realize until now that this was not something that everybody doesn't experience or I thought I was just crazy. And, and with anything that makes you different, any part of you that makes you different, how you experience it depends a lot on how supportive the people around you are. If you are a synesthete near other synesthetes, not only are you going to learn about it earlier, you're also going to have a more positive experience. But if you are a synesthete who is around not only people who are not synesthetes, but also people who are extremely uh, discriminatory against people who are different or not understanding or willing to call you mentally ill, well, then your experience is going to be extremely unpleasant and worrisome. You know, every now and then I'll get a letter from somebody saying, how do I cure this? How do I get rid of this? And I have to tell them, you know, science does not think there's anything wrong with you. And I can't help you even if there was. And I loved there was a question from the audience in one of Dr. Saitoek's recorded talks at the Library of Congress, I think. Mm-hmm. And a woman raised her hand. She said, well, her son, who had tastes associated with sounds, um, was, and I think it was like, you know, little, like eight or ten years old. Mm-hmm. And this particular teacher's voice put a terrible taste in his mouth. And so it literally was making him sick. And I loved it because he said, you are a good mom because she, you know, everyone was saying this boy's being rude. He's being ridiculous. And she marched off and demanded that his class be changed. And I don't think she knew at the time that he was a synesthete. It was just, Mm -hmm. she believed him, which I thought was so fabulous. Isn't that nice when parents are able to believe their children? (laughs) I don't mean to be very droll, but it's something... Well, especially something like this, right? Yeah, something like synesthesia. If they aren't in a supportive community or they, you know, just think that they're, they're making it up or they're exaggerating. Yeah. And is there any type of synesthesia where, because I was thinking when I heard that about, um, connected with an emotion because I thought, you know, I know people that they'll go into a restaurant and maybe the smell or the sounds or something in there, they'll say, oh, you know, I can't be in here. It's actually making me sick. And it's not mm-hmm. that they just aren't liking it. You know, they're having a physical reaction. And yeah. and I was interested to see, you know, with this, oftentimes with synesthesia, people said, oh, well, maybe they're associating a memory, an early memory or something, which was disproven. But So can it also be connected with sort of a, an emotional response? People do write to me and say, I have particular emotional responses with certain stimuli. I'm a synesthete. I I have a harder time with that particular one simply because for synesthesia to exist, the experience has to be constant and reliable. And my scientist brain has a hard time saying... You experience emotions with a small subset of random stimuli. I can't personally qualify that as an emotional synesthete. That doesn't mean that there aren't synesthetes who constantly associate multiple stimuli with an emotion. And I, and perhaps as the field evolves, emotional-related synesthesia will become, you know, just as common or just as recognized as other ones. So, let's talk so the answer about, is maybe. Maybe. That's a good answer, especially in science. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the consistency of it, because that seemed to be a big element with really validating its existence, that this was something that the the associations are consistent for someone with synesthesia typically throughout their life. Yeah. We 
one of the criteria we use to label somebody with synesthesia or diagnose somebody with synesthesia or some other word that sounds very clinical but really isn't is that they have the same perception for the same stimulus over a period of time. If nothing else, this eliminates people who are faking it because it's very hard for all but the most practiced fakes, the most amazing memory people or synesthetes to maintain that level of consistency over a particular period of time, even if they're trying. Now, people have trained people to become quote-unquote synesthetic using lots of association training, usually between letters and colors, but it's really, it's, yeah, most of us don't think that this is a a faking memory-related trick. Synesthetes have the same perception with a little bit of variation throughout their lives. And that's one of the ways we use to categorize them. And with a little bit of variance, I mean, we used to use the Pantone color palettes. You know, they had a CYMK value, it's, you know, ink printing. Synesthetes could get the exact same color palette square on multiple visits. In many cases, it would be off by a little bit of a hue, or rather a little bit of a shade, but not by very, very much. But for some synesthetes, they will say, my letter, my colors for this letter are not consistent. You know, this letter sometimes is clear, sometimes is cloudy. This one doesn't really have a letter color. Um, and because I talk a lot about color graphemic because that's with whom I did my research. So, and I think I saw something where it said that for someone who's a synesthete, there could be a variation of color, you know, with sort of 100,000 or more colors. And they say, well, wait, no, my color's not on this chart. Yes. That it's that specific. Yeah, it depends on the synesthete. And it's not just a tree to hide behind. It really does depend on a synesthete. They are a very heterogeneous group, other than they all have synesthesia. Mm -hmm. And we keep trying to find things that are universally true about them. And um, I I don't think we're going to find that. And so you say you get some letters where people are saying, could you please help me fix this or take it away? We're going to take just a short break. And then I'd like to come back and talk about that a little bit. Okay. Okay. This is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to That Got Me Thinking. We are talking about synesthesia today with Dr. Veronica Gross. We'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5, Ketchum, Idaho. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. We're talking about synesthesia, and I'm here with Dr. Veronica Gross. So, Dr. Gross, I wanted to talk just a little bit about the idea of it being a, a benefit or a disability. And are there, first we'll talk about, are there negative aspects that you've seen or that you hear from people that have synesthesia? Absolutely. Uh, and I'd say it is a rare synesthete who does not have one perception that makes him or her slightly uncomfortable or who has not run into a situation in which the color they have for a name or a word doesn't quite match what what is going on. And I think of a very particular example and a simple kind of silly example, quote unquote, of a synesthete who has a very bright red bold color for S. And when she was introduced to the wife of a pastor and learned that the person's name was Sherry, 
she couldn't say the person's first name because the person was not a big, red, bold, bright type, bright red type of person. But when she learned the name Sherry was actually spelled with a CH instead of an S, which had a different color, then she was able to use that person's first name more easily. And that's kind of on a very micro scale. But on a large scale, there are synesthetes who find their perceptions extremely overwhelming. And I do get I do get letters from parents all the time, and this is something that personally I'm trying to set up research on and you know, trying to work with a nearby researcher to get a little research going. I get letters from parents about their children who are just – they're unable to do their reading and math as quickly as they want to because they're having trouble suppressing the colors of the numbers and letters. Or there are people whose have such profound synesthesias for so many senses, for so many experiences, that just walking around day to day, they're inundated with it. I'd say that those are on the extreme end, and but I think that every synesthete will run into situations where what their experience is, is not necessarily helping them on a day-to-day basis. Because there's some internal dissonance caused by mm-hmm. the association between the two or, or just sort of being overwhelmed. And, and um, also having grown up for many, maybe having both either the shame or mm-hmm. humiliation or mm-hmm. people that on the flip side grew up thinking that everyone else was experiencing this and then sort of surprised that other people weren't. You know, then you're sort of odd man out. Yeah, and and I think that people who come to this realization do often go to the, well, what's wrong with me <laughs> stage next, and then they'll seek me out or they'll seek out another researcher. I mean, thank goodness there's so many more research, uh, resources on the web now versus 10 years ago. Well, and the gal that I'd mentioned earlier, Hova, she and her husband have created a website for people to build community and understand their experience and share their experience, but also she said as a place that they could help to promote scientific research, that this was actually a difficult area for science to research because people had such different experiences and because people didn't necessarily know that this was something that was scientific and so that it was a difficult area for science to study even when science wanted to. Yeah, what you're looking for in a publishable science paper are significant differences, or very rarely you don't want to see a significant difference for certain things. And with such a diverse group, it's very hard to do your research and then sit down and say, look, we found significant differences between synesthetes and non-synesthetes. And I think that you know, wards off synesthesia research from many synesthesia researchers because they know they're not going to be able to get the power, the statistical power they need, the statistical results they need to publish the paper. And also, when you have synesthesia in so many different domains, you can't do reading tests on synesthesia for somebody who has synesthesia purely for sound. You can't do research on ordinal linguistic personality synesthesia at the same time as you do uh, taste touch because you can't make stimuli for both of them that will trigger both of them. Or for someone who thinks the chicken is too spiky, I thought that was yes. such an amazing example, um, which is what sort of started Dr. Saitouk's research on this or, or dive into it, was that he was eating dinner with a new friend and the friend accidentally blurted out because he wouldn't yeah. have mentioned it otherwise that when he pulled the chicken out of the oven, oh no, it's, it's not spiky enough, it doesn't have yeah. enough points, it's too round. And for that person, you could, you know, and it, it to to 
tell all the readers, you know, eventually Cytoic gives this man amyl nitrate, otherwise known as poppers, and puts him in a scanner. Uh, in a, I believe he was in a doing PET scanning and asks him to describe the enhanced experiences. For somebody like that, you can give that person a whole bunch of tastes and see what they look like, but you can't find another 10 synesthetes who all have, you know, a taste touch and expect them all to have pointy, salty chicken. For many of them, that salt might be round or it might be um, just hot. It's hard to tell. So, yeah, it's we're all about community happening. But, you know, no community is going to be able to erase all the statistical problems or research limitations. So all we need really is infinite money and infinite space. And then we can do all the synesthesia research we want. And and your dedication and infinite. (laughs) Honestly, infinite graduate students is probably the one thing I could guarantee we would would find. And so would you say it tends to be more um, negative for someone who has bidirectional synesthesia? Uh, where is that sort of a more overwhelming experience? I actually don't know a lot of purely bidirectional synesthetes. Mm-hmm. That's my answer. I've, and like I said, most people who write me aren't overwhelmed. I could hypothesize that somebody who has a bidirectional synesthesia would find it extremely overwhelming, but I can't say for well, sure. Well, then it seems like something that that's someone who is not a synesthete, they're sort of ignorant, but kindly meant first reaction is, oh my gosh, it must be so overwhelming. And you think, well, you know, does a blind person or a deaf person say that to someone who can hear and see, oh my gosh, you're seeing things all the time. (laughs) You're hearing noises all the time. At some point I was reading um, a blog by a person who was deaf and talking about how messy it must be for the hearing people and you know how kind of inferior hearing was in some ways because of pronunciation and diction and the chaotic you know nature of the you know hearing world so i think it is a natural f- first uh, response of a person who's not synesthetic to say oh you have this extra thing going on you must be overwhelmed well not necessarily if you're used to growing up with it then it's not overwhelming so let's talk a little bit flip that over and talk about the personal benefits which it seems like there are many more than the negatives that it's just a, a much more um rich life experience and that people wouldn't trade this if they could well that might be overstating it uh, that so from a clinical side a number of researchers including myself have found that synesthetes have uh, islands of ability related to their synesthesia synesthetes tend to show improved memory for things that have a synesthetic color rather a synesthetic percept with them so if you have colored words and you hear words you are more like you know with color you're more likely to remember those you know, words than somebody who isn't synesthetic for colored words. So and, you could remember someone's name because it starts with D and that's a blue name. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And uh, this is pretty well established. And some people, and this actually goes back and forth, some people say that their synesthesia helps them navigate better and some people say that it makes it worse. So we know that there are at least one, <laughs> there is at least one thing that synesthetes tend to show and... As for making it more rich, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily change it, but I don't know if every synesthete uses it in the same way that an artist might. So I think of you know Carol Steen or Marsha Smilek, and they are using their synesthesias as a way to make their art, and they are not alone. And there's at least one study showing that 
there tends to be, in at least one class, there tended to be more synesthetes in that art or music class than there was, you know, than you would have expected. But I don't know if everyone is using their synesthesia in a way or whether it's just a thing that's happening around them, just like hearing or seeing or smelling is a thing around us. So that whether they tend to be more creative or tend to be drawn more to the creative fields, we cannot, really we can't tell it yet. There, uh, it's something that it gets argued back and forth. It gets argued back and forth. I think it will be argued back and forth until the end of time and we get, you know, the definitive handbook of what was going on. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to throw out some maybe name, uh, known names of sure. artists in that are synesthetes. Yeah. Um, Kandinsky, mm-hmm. Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder, Isaac have, Perlman. Have, uh, so have those three actually confirmed that they were synesthetic? Well, now that I don't know if they have confirmed. So is it just oh. conjecture? I don't know. Yeah, like, no, well, that, well, I mean, I, other I, other synesthetes that were throwing out their names. Uh, okay. Okay. How about Olivier Messiaen, the musician? Well, so again, for a long. So if the if the people say they're synesthetes, then they're synesthetes. And then it's possible they're using their synesthesia in their composition, or it's possible they are composers who are synesthetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know who is and who is not. It's actually not there something were, I keep up on. There was some video with two artists um, looking who were also synesthetes looking at Kandinsky's work. So, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe they were reading it in <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to what they saw through their experience. But, they sort of said, yeah. oh, I recognize those shapes as, as being consistent with you know, what I see. Yeah, and and Kandinsky, if I'm looking, you know, as looking at the Wikipedia page, don't tell anybody. You're fast. Yeah, well, I had it up uh, (laughs) when I came into this. Uh, Kandinsky, I think, may have said he did it deliberately. But as with any phenomenon, you know, there's the tendency to want to label Abraham Lincoln as, I believe, autistic or with some other, you know, mental illness as a group gains pride in itself and knowledge of itself, there is the tendency to assign that self-characteristic to famous people in an effort to give it legitimacy and historic and historicalness. It's the same impulse for as a newly out gay young man, you know, saying, oh, this famous figure must be gay as a way of validating himself. And I think that the synesthetic community is looking for strong artistic people to say these people were synesthetes they are good people i am a synesthete i must also be a good person and i think the ultimate determination of synesthesia in an artist is whether or not they say they were or not i I believe the termination is left not as an exercise to the reader but as an exercise to the writer and so in that vein a a few other things that were mentioned in in some of the research i did was that that synesthesia can be valuable to science in other areas because this was an area where you had this very identifiable um, happening in the brain, Mm -hmm. you know, between inhibition and connectivity and neurological stimulation, and that that could be valuable for looking at other maybe neurodegenerative diseases. Is that something that is sort of progressing in the scientific world or is that a, more of a possibility for the future? Maybe. Uh, we'll put maybe in there. All right. So here is where I give a, an opinion and um, people angrily, angrily write to you and me. 
I believe that synesthesia should be studied because it is a thing that is different in a brain and that it should be studied as a way of understanding brain development and sensation. I don't necessarily think that the main reason for studying synesthesia should be that it can help us with neurodegeneration or autism or any sort of other brain thing. And that a lot of time people are saying this as a way to justify their research, which I don't think is necessarily correct. I think that synesthesia can provide insight onto how uh, we learn to read, how we learn to understand a language. I think, if anything, we should be using synesthesia to research things like dyslexia or dyscalculia or any other you know, problem of understanding. But neurogeneration, eh, I think that's a bit of a stretch to get money from places that, are, that want to help us. And I think that's a real shame. So, so let's go back to theory two then and talk a little bit about maybe the scientific opportunities in that area in the sense of maybe if we all have this capacity but we aren't using it to be able to shed more light on how the brain works as far as perception goes and our conscious perception versus maybe other things that are happening that we then aren't aware of because that's not where our conscious is. (laughs) <laughs> doing whatever it does. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think that, I, I think that there is so much going on under the surface of our brains, you know, and for all the, the stuff he gets and the negative press he gets, Freud's idea of this great untapped unconscious or subconscious is dead on. We encounter so much in the world at every given moment, and we only perceive a tiny 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 bit of it and we talk about the difference between sensation and perception when we talk about the brain sensation is the physical trigger of the the neurological experience oh goodness let me re- try and restate that the sensation is the physical happening of a sensor that gets to the brain but perception is of what we are aware, of what we're aware and the simplest thing is this you are not aware of the smell of your house until you go out of your house and come back in you know there's a whole set of febreze commercials right now about how you aren't aware of how bad your car smells but your passengers do and so you should use febreze and then it doesn't smell bad anymore we are always sensing that bad smell our nose, those little odorants, the little particles are hitting our nose, but perceptually we're no longer aware of it because uh, we've just kind of screened it out. And of course, you know, they're also, you know, our body learns to ignore things. The sensation, you know, it learns to ignore things that are happening. You know, I can make everybody right now aware of their left, the sensation of their pants or their skirt on their left kneecap, which until right now you hadn't, you know, weren't aware of. So, why do synesthetes have access to this part? I mean, are we all just able to screen it out? Did the part go away? I, I think perceptual binding, you know, how letters obtain meaning is, is fascinating. How, how did our brain get wired to understand that a straight line with a little curve on it is an uppercase D, except if you are not speaking English, in which case it has a completely different meaning? And then with that, what about the crosstalk, the idea that the senses are continually talking to one another and, and igniting? And is, is that, does that go along with the idea or is that separate? Uh, hmm. There is so much going on in our brains that we don't know about 
that I don't even know if I can answer that question without getting extremely metaphysical. Well, and that's okay, because I'm also, because I'm like, that's the whole other element of this, right? And I, yeah. I also, I saw something um, when I was lo- looking at some of this research, and it was a, a related but separate saying, you know, that that was a myth, this idea that, well, we only use 10% of our brains. No, you know? <laughs> Any ten, anytime somebody says that, I feel that that person really needs to go go stop whatever they're doing and and sit in a room and turn off the lights and close the door and give themselves a timeout for how incorrect and damaging that idea and is. And yet I would believe it's a pretty still pervasive thought. And, 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 and so this sort of shifts it with your conversation about this stuff's all happening and it's being used, but yes. we aren't maybe aware of oh, what it's right. doing over there yeah, in that it, 90%. Right. I mean, there's just the, like right now in front of me, there is a a glass of water, and I am not drinking it. There is a tremendous amount of activity occurring that makes me not drink it. And, and somebody who has frontal lobe damage might just start drinking it even if they weren't necessarily thirsty. Mm-hmm. We don't think about that kind of stuff, but it's happening. There is so much under the surface that is happening. And synesthesia, I think, can give us a little bit of insight as to all the things our brain could do if it felt like it. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And and it seemed there were a number of people are interested in kind of understanding more of what is this experience like that a number of the synesthetes now there are websites out there that James Wannerton mapped out the British underground as to how each stop tastes to him. Mm-hmm. And then he has to get off one stop early sometimes because he does not like the taste of that the name of that stop. Yeah. Um and, I, and again, I think that's something that many synesthetes will, will find, that their lives are briefly inconvenienced in everyday life. But on the other hand, I think a lot of us have our idiosyncrasies absent of synesthesia that interfere with our everyday life. Like, I hate driving down a particular street. I find it boring. So I, <laughs> I don't go down that street. There's a, another synesthete, Dane uh, Stayskull, mm-hmm. and has a website, and she was a twin, which makes it interesting, and it wasn't again later until later in life that she was sort of took this deep, relaxed breath of, oh my gosh, I'm I'm not such a weirdo. There are other people with this. And um, she has created a simulator to help people experience what it is that she experiences. So hers is um, sound and um, sight. Mm-hmm. And she's created a uh, a guitar where it plays and you can see the colors oh, that's very fun. Um, that come around as the different um, notes go. Which And then Hova, she has a side as well, and she's playing the violin and doing the same thing with her husband. He seems like such a good husband. <laughs> he did all these things. He made this light show so that each, for her, it's each um, note is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and also seem that they had to earlier on have, and I was thinking just then, that's part of the negative part, adaptive strategies for sort of mm-hmm. coping mm-hmm. with the experiences they were having in a traditional school setting or something like that. Yeah. One, one area of research that, again, is something I really want to do is getting a sense of how many synesthetes either now as you know, child, children or teens or remembering back to their childhood years, how many of them ran into problems in their school district? And next, how can we help them? And so let's talk a little bit because science likes numbers and especially if they're going to do something. What the numbers seemed so varied from sort of thinking before it was one in a million to then maybe one in a hundred thousand and then one number I said said one in 23 might have some sort 
Right. Um, where where are you on that scale? Oh, I'm I'm probably closer to the one in a thousand than I am to one in a million. I'd, I'd be willing to to drop it down more. You know, as you broaden the definition of synesthesia, obviously you're going to find uh, more people who fall into the net, so to speak. Uh, one in twenty three seems a bit much for me, but then again, it could be, you know, I could be wrong. But when I talk about synesthesia, and I think most people talk about synesthesia, they think of these overarching massive experiences, the whole language, the whole number of letters, you know. But there are many synesthetes whose only synesthesia is they have colored days of the week and colored months of the year. And that's it. That's the, they don't have colored words otherwise. They don't have colored sounds. But, and, but they're still synesthetes. It's just a very narrow, really kind of interesting variant. And a synesthesia, as with many things, is a question of self-identification. We don't know if you're a synesthete unless you tell us. So, so in the last couple of minutes, I want to talk, we're going a little metaphysical. I want to sure. talk about um, this man, Neil Harbison, who is, uh, was born blind. Mm-hmm. And he had inserted a permanent cranial implant into his head. So he, he likes to say he's the first cyborg um, to be able to hear color. Hmm. And then I know there was some argument about, well, color doesn't have, you know, really a a linked frequency, so you can't actually, you know, match it. But anyway, he's enjoying it very much. Mm -hmm. So I want to just a little bit of, you're having worked in this area for so long, has it shifted your idea at all of perception? Well, it's kind of hard to say because my knowledge grew up alongside of my of my synesthesia research, you know, I think my idea of perception is it might be very different from the average neuroscientist's view, simply because they weren't hanging out with synesthetes for six or seven years. Uh, I, because I am fundamentally a neuroscientist, perception will always be a collection of neural impulses. It will always be some area of the brain giving a giving rise to a conscious experience, and you know where and what. <laughs> that, that that is truly metaphysical because we have not yet figured out how exactly the gray mass of cells becomes uh, becomes an us. You know that then I think that is at the moment unknowable. I'd like to see where research goes in the next hundred thousand years, though. And if you could or had to pick one type, which one would you choose? Mm, probably color music. I think it would make many pieces more interesting that I find very boring right now. <laughs> <laughs> I find much chamber music to be too simple and perhaps adding a layer of color onto it might be wonderful. On the other hand, it could be that notes all come together in such a discordant and uncomfortable color combination that I'd have to stop listening to music altogether. Entirely. You couldn't bear yes. it anymore. I mean, so right now I'd really be more on the, like, I'd like to be able to fly necessarily than be able to, you know, be a synesthete because I kind of know what flying would bring and synesthesia is so individual. I wouldn't presume to say I want to be a synesthete. That's their thing. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been been incredibly enjoyable and enlightening. Well, I hope so. And I hope people who are synesthetes go out and look for resources on the web, talk to people, learn more about themselves. And I hope everyone does well. This is KDPI 88.5 Ketchum.